I want you to do a little bit of imagining with me this morning as we start out together. I want you to imagine with me that you and I have been invited to someone's home here in the congregation. They've invited you and I to come and to spend an evening with them. So they gave us the time to be there. And so we both happen to pull up at the curb out in front of their house right around the same time. And we get out of our cars and we walk up to the house together and one of us rings the doorbell. Our host comes to the door and opens the door and and greets us and, and says, come on in. And as we enter, he offers to take my jacket, uh, but he ignores yours. Invites us into the living room. To me, he says, sit right here in this comfortable recliner. And to you, or he sits down in the other one in the living room there, and he says to you, there's a, there's a wooden chair in the kitchen. Why don't you sit in that wooden chair and you can uh, drag it in a little closer, but don't get it on the carpet. So we're sitting there in the living room together and talking, and, and you're sitting kind of half in the kitchen, half in the living room on your wooden chair, careful that you don't get the legs onto the carpet. Dinner time comes, and he invites us to come into the dining room, and he offers me a seat right next to him at the, near the head of the table, and... He doesn't really say anything to you about where you're supposed to sit. And so you you look around the table and you find a seat and you sit down. Others in the family are, of course, coming in at this time and they're getting seats. And, and then the next thing you know, one of his children walks up next to you and just sort of stands and looks at you and says, you're sitting in my seat. You're not sure what to do. You feel a little uncomfortable. And so you get up out of the seat and you move to another seat at the table. Dinner is served and the dinner conversation is all about the gospel and how Christ has come to redeem us from our sin and, and how it doesn't matter whether we are high-born or low. It doesn't matter our intelligence, our college uh, accomplishments or not, our economic status, our ethnicity, none of those things matter. The gospel overwhelms all of those things, and you're sitting at the table, and this conversation is going on around you. Dinner is over, and the evening kind of comes to an end, and so he ushers you and I to the door, and he retrieves my coat, offers to help me put it on, and shakes my hand kind of pats you a little bit on the back and ushers at us out the door and says, good night. And we head back down the sidewalk to our cars. You climb into your 20-year-old Honda Accord and I climb into my brand new Lexus. And off we go. How does that make you feel? How does that make you feel? And why? Why does that story make you so uncomfortable? This story, by the way, is played out over and over again, at least the theme of the story, in churches all around the world. And has been for thousands of years. 
But my friends, these things should not be. They should not be. Open your Bibles up to James chapter 2. James chapter 2, page 1208, if you're using a pew Bible. Last week, James warned us in the end of chapter 1 about the dangers of substituting good and desirable qualities like Bible knowledge and church participation for the greater good of discipleship. He warned that unless the external activities in which we participate produce an internal change of behavior resulting in righteousness, that we have deluded ourselves and that we lie in great spiritual peril. This morning, he's going to continue his uncomfortable probing of our hearts. And this morning, he's going to focus on the sin of partiality. The sin of partiality. Let's hear what James has to say beginning in verse 1 of chapter 2. My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes, and you say, you sit here in a good place, and you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down by my footstool, have you not made distinctions among yourselves? And become judges with evil motives? Listen, my beloved brethren. Did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith? And heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the, for, the fair name by which you have been called? If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So we look at these verses together this morning, and in the back of your bulletin, I've included a, an outline for you. There are three essential truths that we must embrace. 
Three essential truths that we must embrace so that we can avoid the sin of partiality. The first of those truths appear in verses 1 to 4. And that is that faith and favoritism are incompatible. Faith and favoritism are incompatible. My brethren, he says, verse 1, do not hold your faith with an attitude of personal favoritism. Wow. The Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 2, verse 11, that there is no partiality with God. God does not account one person higher than another. In fact, God taught that lesson to the Apostle Peter in a very vivid way. Do you remember that? In Acts chapter 10. By repeatedly, in the vision, lowering a sheet filled with unclean things and saying to Peter, Arise, kill, and eat. Peter said, Oh, never, Lord, never. God said to Peter, Do not call unclean that which I have made clean. Peter finally learned the lesson and He voiced that very truth to the Gentile Cornelius, Acts 10, verse 34. And the gospel began to break out of its Jewish mold and to begin to reach out to the nations. Cornelius representing the inclusion of Gentiles. My friends, our faith in Christ, that is the gospel, is built upon an understanding that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Isn't that right? And that there is none righteous, no, not one. That means that we all come the same way and we all have the same need. There is no hierarchy. There are no preferences. All are sinners and all need Christ and all need Christ equally. Equally. We are sinners saved by grace. When we get a hold of that truth, it is incomprehensible that we would show favoritism towards one sinner over another. That we would count one sinner as somehow more noble, more worthy than another. As if their sewage doesn't stink, right? My friends, this is huge. It is huge. Personal favoritism, our compound word. It means to to lift up someone's face, to elevate them. to To be biased towards them favorably because of their position because of the circumstances of their life, because of their popularity, because of other external factors associated with them. It's to accept the outer reality for the inner reality. You remember what God said to Samuel, right, in the choosing of the great king of Israel. Man looks on the outside, but God looks upon where? The heart. God looks upon the heart. James describes here, these first few verses of chapter 2, 
The way this can happen, and he does it with an illustration of a rich and a poor visitor to the church. This is an illustration. He says, Or if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, you pay special attention to the rich one, right? You offer him the finest seat. You say to the poor one over there somewhere. It would not be uncommon in the first century, by the way, for people to come to church with a gold ring. It's not uncommon for people to come to church today with a gold ring. I would imagine if I look around here, I would see most of you have a gold ring and the ones that don't wish they did. (laughs) Can I get an amen on that? Yeah. (laughs) So it's not the fact that the person comes in with a gold ring on their finger. Actually, more literally, he is a gold ringed man. The idea is there's a gold ring on every finger. He's got hands, fingers, hands full of gold rings. And he walks into the assembly. Not only that, but his clothing stands out, right? He's dressed in fine clothes. Bright, shining garments, actually. Gold thread embroidered into the fabric. The fabric, perhaps, of of purple or crimson or a combination thereof. Stands out. Fingers full of gold rings, clothes that shine in the light. There's no missing this character. Hmm. Maybe in a modern way, we would say that in he comes with a gigantic gold pinky ring, right? Gigantic gold pinky ring and a Brooks Brothers suit. All dressed nicely. Into the assembly he comes. And in comes another man with him. This man doesn't have gold rings on all his fingers. His clothes, it says here, are dirty, literally filthy. Maybe because he's a common laborer. He's been out working all day, perhaps. His clothes show the sign of his hard work. Or maybe he's a homeless person. Maybe he has slept in his clothes because that's all he has. And he comes. How will this congregation respond? What will they do? Will they look through the externals to see the heart of someone desperately in need of Christ? You know the answer. They usher the rich man, it says, into the finest seat in the house. Verse 3, you sit here in a good place. We have a special seat just for you. They say to the poor man, you stand over there or more literally, you sit down under my footstool. Let's get him out of a way, out of the line of sight, off to the side somewhere where we don't have to look at him. Or how about you just lay down on the floor and I'll put my feet on top of you. 
Because that's your status in life anyway. You're obviously lower than the rest of us. Verse 4. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Fascinating. Both visitors to the assembly ought to be welcomed in equally, right? Are they not both equally in need of Jesus Christ? Aren't they both equally to respond to the gospel in repentance and faith to be saved? Yeah, but one, one's kind of offensive. He shatters our decorum. We don't like your type around here. The other, now you can benefit us. You can benefit us. You're more socially acceptable, and when we hang around you, we become more socially acceptable as well. Or maybe, to be really crass about it, we could sure use some of your financial patronage. If you would become a regular part of our assembly, then your wealth would come to us and we would benefit. Be not become judges with evil motives. You have failed to see as God sees. You have failed to understand that that they are both sinners made in the image of God and they are valuable to God because they bear His image. That the external circumstances of their life are that which God has providentially ordained. My friends, favoritism and faith are incompatible with one another because the ground is level at the cross. You understand that? The ground is level at the cross. No one gets an edge, a leg up on anyone else. Beyond that, it's essential that we believe and understand Verses 5 to 7, that God chooses those whom the world rejects. God chooses those whom the world rejects. To make distinctions based on temporal and external differences, it's not only incompatible with a gospel that saves us, but it's actually contrary to the evident way that God works. Verse 5. Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? James is not saying that that wealthy people cannot be saved or do not get saved. That's not the point. But what he is saying and recognizing is a spiritual reality, and that is that the rich and powerful do not often respond to the gospel because they do not recognize their need for it. 
I can remember years ago, an old fundamentalist pastor that I had. We would go door-to-door evangelism, and we would walk up to a house, and if there was a boat in the driveway, he would say, there's not a chance here. He said, I've never led anyone to the Lord who had a boat in their driveway. (laughs) So I asked him, I said, what has a boat got to do with it? He said, anybody who can afford a boat has everything the world needs to offer, and they sense no need for Christ. Now, obviously, that's not theologically correct. A few of you got boats out there, I'm sure. But it was a practical observation that has been borne out over time and continues to be borne out over time that it is the poor, it is the lowly, it is the off-scourings of society that tend to respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. The New Testament says this. Church history bears it out. Jesus said it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, page 1141. By the way, the city of Corinth was a wealthy city. Seaport city on the Isthmus, connecting east and west the trade routes. They passed through the city. And when you pass through the city, you pay tolls. When you pay tolls and customs, some people get rich. There's a lot of wealth in Corinth. And yet notice how Paul addresses the church, beginning in verse 26, chapter 1. Consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised, God has chosen the things that are not, that he might nullify the things that are. Why? That no man should boast before God. That no one should boast. It is a spiritual reality that those who are well off in this life are less likely to come to faith in Jesus Christ. 2,000 years of church history bears this out. All around the world, my friends, it is the poor. It is the outcast. It is those who are not well thought of in society that make up the church of Jesus Christ. We live in a bubble. We live in a time, providentially, in God's economy, in which we are wealthy. Compared to the rest of the world, we're wealthy. And our Christianity is real, to be sure. But it is an anomaly. It's an anomaly. This is not how God generally works. And it is not how God is generally working today. I can't help but marveling, marvel at the evangelical church's fascination 
was celebrity conversions. Famous athletes, rock stars, movie stars, industrialists. We have this fascination with if this rich and powerful and socially mobile person will just come to faith in Jesus Christ, then what? Then the world will think better of us? That somehow our attachment to a crucified and risen Savior will become more acceptable in the marketplace? Do we really crave the world's recognition and affirmation that badly? It is a fool's errand. It is a fool's errand. Christianity is abhorrent to those whose kingdom is of this world. You understand that? Those whose kingdom is of this world find Christianity abhorrent. It is only those who, by the Spirit's enablement, have been able to make the divine calculation that this life is worth giving up for the life to come. That are willing to take up their cross and follow Christ. And the more we have the harder it is to give it up. What do we do with this truth? How do we apply it? (laughs) Well, how about this? Since it is true that God chooses those whom the world rejects, It would seem like a good idea in terms of evangelistic strategy to target those whom the world is rejecting. What do you think? Kind of a novel idea. Who in our community are lowest in status in the eyes of the world? It might be them whom God is working they might represent the great harvest field of our day. What do you think? But if we try this, if we do something like this, we're going to have people coming to this church that are not exactly like us. I mean, what if they look different than we do? What if they act differently than we do? What if they have different ideas about hairstyles, dress codes, body piercings, or tattoos? Ooh. Maybe we should insist that they get cleaned up first before they come. We could, we could set up a booth out in the parking lot. You know, shower, shave, haircut, correct clothing. Then you're welcome. I mean, after all, isn't adopting white middle class cultural values the same thing as conversion? I mean, when you get your hair cut, doesn't that mean that you're growing in holiness? 
Isn't that what that means? We laugh. And it's a nervous laugh. Because we know, although we would never voice things like that. Those thoughts do roll through our minds. They do. My friends, it's sometimes the way we act as well. You sit in the kitchen in the hard wooden chair. You can listen to what we talk about, but don't you come into the living room. Faith and favoritism are incompatible. God chooses those whom the world rejects. Third, essential truth. And maybe the hardest of them all. Heaven is deeply offended when we refuse to welcome strangers. Heaven is deeply offended when we refuse to welcome strangers. Verse 8. If you, however, are fulfilling the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. In Matthew 22, Jesus summarized the entire Old Testament law into two commandments. You remember? One vertical, one horizontal. The vertical commandment is in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. The vertical commandment. Then there's a horizontal commandment. It's found in Leviticus 19 and verse 18. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And by the way, Jesus defined for us, didn't he? Who is our neighbor, right? Luke chapter 10. Our neighbor is anyone who comes across our path and is in need. They are our neighbor. So when we welcome a stranger into our midst, according to James, verse 8, we fulfill the law, the royal law, the sovereign law, the law that is sovereign above all other laws, vertical law excluded. To love your neighbor as yourself is to fulfill all of the law horizontally. Conversely, to refuse to extend ourselves to the lowly and instead to give preference to the wealthy and to the powerful is to convict ourselves of being lawbreakers. That's how the argument goes. Leviticus 19, verse 34. The stranger who resides with you shall be to you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself, for you were aliens in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Or Matthew 9, verse 13. Jesus said, but go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice. To love 
Our neighbor is to fulfill the law. But, verse 9, but if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at one point, he has become guilty of all. This is where James brings down the hammer theologically. This is where he draws the net around us. This is where he tightens the noose of his argument. We may think the sin of partiality is a relatively small matter. Maybe it's just bad behavior, you know, bad manners. It's kind of lamentable. It's, it's in poor taste. It's kind of a social breach, right? Invite someone into your home and to, to treat them shabbily. That's kind of a social breach. Maybe it's just a sort of a cultural hangover from the olden days. We didn't like them kind around. My friends, heaven sees it as deeply repugnant. This is no small matter. This is not a mere social breach. This is, this is not just merely some demonstration of poor manners. Heaven is offended by this. James goes so far to say is that we will be judged for it. He does this, by the way, by making a very simple point. His point is that the failure to keep the whole law makes you a lawbreaker. It makes me a lawbreaker. We fail to keep it all. We are now lawbreakers. We are not guilty of breaking every single law, but we are guilty of picking and choosing which laws we will obey. That makes us a lawbreaker. See, love for strangers, we don't, we don't think that law is that big. It's not that, not that important to us. And so we will dispense with it. And we'll keep the weightier matters of the law. James says, you don't get away with that. To set yourself up in a position where we are now picking and choosing what we will obey is to make ourselves out to be like God. And heaven is deeply offended by that. Deeply offended. It is arrogant. It is presumptuous. And it is sin. All commandments from God are united by a single principle. God gave them. It's as simple as that. God gave them. So if we decide to follow the command about murder and ignore the command about adultery, we are rejecting God as both Lord excuse me, and lawgiver. To reject God as Lord and lawgiver bothers him. It irritates him, to say the least. We can think of it this way. God's commandments are not a salad bar. You know, the salad bar deal, right? You walk down the line and you say, well, I'll have a little of that. No, I don't care for that. I'll have a little of that. No, I don't want that. 
We pick and choose what we like. Is that right? Lettuce, tomatoes, cheese, and lots of chunky blue cheese dressing with croutons. The salad bar approach. But see, God's commandments are not a salad bar. God is the divine master chef. He is the gourmet cook. He has prepared the meal and he has set it before us and he expects us to eat it. He expects us to eat it. Verse 12. <clears throat> so speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Essentially what James is saying is this. We need to speak and act in accordance with the gospel. The law of liberty. Because it is the gospel that will judge us. Now, that's an interesting thought, isn't it? That it is the gospel that will judge us. What he means by this is that the gospel will judge us in the sense that if we truly believe it, it has and is continually changing us. Because we have received mercy, the gospel is to transform us into becoming merciful people. Because through the gospel we have received compassion, it is to make us compassionate. Because through the gospel we have come to the realization that God is no respecter of persons, therefore we are to no longer be a respecter of persons. See, the gospel changes us. But James says, if it hasn't, We need to fear. Judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. I'll probably illustrate it for you this way. Matthew chapter 18. We don't turn there. But Jesus is talking about forgiveness there in the end of the chapter. You remember? He talks about two slaves. One is owed. A, uh, one slave owes a debt to the master that is impossible to repay. It is an astronomical debt. He beseeches the master to forgive him, and, and he says, I'll make payment. You know, just don't throw me in jail. The master says, I forgive your debt. You're forgiven. That slave is owed a relatively small amount by another slave, and he goes out to that slave, and he grabs him. He says, you pay me what you owe me. And the slave says to the first slave, give me a little while. I'll, I'll pay you back. Be merciful with me. And he won't have any part of it. He throws him in prison until he can repay what's owed. When the master hears about that, he calls that first slave back in and he says, what have you done? I forgave you all this debt. And you could not forgive this little teeny amount. And he hands him over to the torturers, it says, until he should repay every last penny. My friends, he will never repay the debt. What is the point? 
The point is that if we have been forgiven through the gospel, we are to be forgiving people. That's the point. And if we are not forgiving people, then maybe we really haven't believed the gospel. In the same way, we have received mercy through the gospel. We have received compassion through the gospel. We have been brought in as strangers and aliens who were once far off through the gospel. Now we must in turn extend the same mercy, compassion, and openness to others. And if we will not do that, then maybe we never really believe that gospel to begin with. The gospel of Jesus Christ saves eternally and temporally. It produces a change as it's embraced by faith. The end of verse 13, mercy triumphs over judgment. The gospel will ultimately triumph. It will triumph. We are all guilty of the sin of partiality this morning. Every single one of us. There's not a one of us here who hasn't participated in this sin numerous times. We all stand convicted. So what do we do? Does that mean that our salvation is not real? Does that mean that somehow we've never truly believed on the Lord Jesus Christ? No. No. But it does mean this. The Spirit of God is speaking to your heart this morning and you are sensing the conviction from His Word that this is an area of your life that is out of control. And you need to come to the cross and ask for grace to deliver you. When you fall into it temporally, as we all do, we need to go to the cross and plead the grace of God in Christ to deliver us, to transform us, to confess, oh God, out of the blackness and the ugliness of my own heart, I have dealt with partiality with others. I have looked down on people. I have assumed that they will never believe the gospel because of their social circumstances. I have extended myself falsely to those who are socially higher that could benefit me. I've had an attitude around here that says, strangers not welcome. We don't like your type around here. Oh, Lord, I'm guilty. Please forgive me for Jesus' sake. The grace of God in Christ will flow to our hearts. Whether it be the very first time by which we come to faith in Him, or whether it be the 50 millionth time that we throw ourselves once again on His mercy, For we are sinners, saved by grace, and we will never be anything but. 
Join me as I pray. Oh, Lord God, your word wounds. It goes into the secret places of our heart, those rooms that we have closed off. Those places where we do not want you to be, and yet your word penetrates, your spirit, through your word, searches our hearts and and reveals the blackness within Lord, we, we hear a message like this and we can be so discouraged. We can feel, oh Lord, like what's the use? What's the hope? And our Father, if our hope lies only in ourselves with self-reform, then we have no hope at all. But our hope lies in Jesus Christ. He has conquered sin and death. He has risen from the dead. His life is now our life by faith. And that we can conquer these lingering sins. Oh Lord, let us take your word this morning and let your spirit wash over us. Cleanse us. Renew a steadfast heart within us and a desire to love Sinners as we have been loved. To look at men and women, boys and girls as image bearers of God. To look past the externals. To see the human soul. So very valuable that Christ himself would come and die to redeem it. Oh, Lord, do you work in us now, we pray, even as we sing. In Jesus' name, amen.